0: Hey there, welcome to Night School. Last night I got to thinking about the movie Sleepers. I'm sure most people are familiar with it. It was a big movie in the 90s based on a book. I remember when it came out. I remember when the advertisements were first on TV because it looked like it was going to be a coming-of-age movie. And I guess it was in its own way. It was a coming-of-age movie. And it seemed like it was going to be dark. You know, from the ads, it was clear that it was a movie about kids who screw up and go to this boys' home juvenile jail place. Is this one of those juvenile jail places? No, but you could tell it was going to be dark because of that. And that they went through stuff. But I guess my, what I'm getting at here is from the ads alone, you didn't know that this was going to be a a miserable movie about kids getting sodomized in jail by guards and then killing them in this weird convoluted courtroom drama. I guess you kind of got a little bit, but you don't really realize the the whole the focal point, like what glues this movie together is sexual abuse. Cuz there was one night where I was watching TV with my sister and this would have been 1996, so I would have been probably in 4th or 5th grade, I'm guessing maybe sixth grade no it was probably fifth grade because my sister was still in high school and we'd sometimes maybe go to a movie together that kind of thing she was a lot older and we were watching tv and an ad for sleepers came on she was like oh I should take you to that and I was like yeah and we never followed through on it and I'm really glad I'm glad that I didn't go see that movie with my sister because it looked like it was just it looks like a great movie for your older sister to take you to if you're a growing boy if you're a, a 11 year old boy uh, it turns out, though, it's not. It's it, it's really not a good movie to see with your loved ones. You, you know, it's just not. <laughs> it's not good for that. Because yeah, it turns out the whole focal point is that these kids. What what? Ha- I mean, I'm not going to give you a synopsis of the movie Sleepers, but basically they go and they get horribly abused, sec- especially sexually, by Kevin Bacon, who plays this evil, sadistic boys' juvenile. I guess it's called a boys' home. But he plays the, the main guard, and him and these other guards just do these awful things to the kids. Not even just that. They're abusive in just about every possible way, including the worst possible ways. But I did end up seeing it after it was out on tape. I was with a family. I was with—I was actually—I was with my mom, my friend, and his mom. And they had a camper, you know, like a uh, a motorhome type of deal, that they they were building— a cabin or something out in this small resort resort town on the other side of the mountains here. Do you want other pointless details? Do you? But, uh, they were in this camper and we went to stay with them and just hang out. It's a place that's out near the wilderness. It's a beautiful place. So it was just a nice little trip. We'd stay in the camper with them, which honestly is really close quarters. You know, you think about like every family has their own routine and some are more used to like being in other people's space than others. But thinking back, it's really strange that we all slept in this little motorhome camper thing together. Because it wasn't like one of those huge ones. It wasn't like it was some tour bus. It was just this camper. But while we were staying there, I think they had one of those dual VHS TVs, you know, one of those TVs with the VHS built into the bottom. Perfect for your camper or motorhome. And one night we were like, let's go rent a movie. And, you know, that's just an amazing feeling to go rent a movie in a town that you don't even live in. There's something, there's always this special feeling about renting a movie in a place where you don't even live. So it's like a strange video store, but yet it's comfortable because it's still a video store and familiar in that way. Not to get too nostalgic. um, I am by nature a very nostalgic person, if that's not obvious. And I'm always fighting against it. Because I don't want to be consumed by—I don't want to be consumed by the nostalgia industry, even though it's probably too late. I don't want to let myself feel consumed. I've got to tell myself that I haven't been completely just torn into a thousand different pieces by the nostalgia machine. But anyway, so you know, it was just there's a lot of fun, like being on vacation and renting something, especially in a weird little resort town in the mountains. But anyway, my friend and I, his name was Eric as well. We were both named Eric, which makes the story a little more strange, like name twins. And we came across Sleepers on the wall, the movie Sleepers. And neither of us had seen it. You know, it it had already been through the theaters, but I think it was still relatively new. I think this, this was probably around a year or less after it came out originally. So it wasn't way later or anything. But we were like, perfect. And this family that I was staying with... They were the kind of people where you always kind of had to watch a coming of age movie. Like when I think about my other childhood friends, I'm really grateful that our parents and people were always on the same page. Like our families had more of a shared, you know, we just had more of like a shared approach to raising your kids where most of my friends had really no constraints on what they could watch, what they could consume. Like, yeah, your parents didn't want you watching porn or anything that was too over the top. Like, maybe they drew a line at NC-17, but they didn't draw a line at R-rated. You know, that's kind of how most of our families were somehow. Uh, Which is really lucky, because there were a lot of families, they were always monitoring their kids. They were always limiting their kids. And I understand that, but I also, I don't agree with it. Because, yeah, you don't want your kid to get exposed to horrible things too early. Like, you don't want to damage their brain but I think in terms of sheer entertainment, in terms of, you know, making your kid an interesting person, I think you should uh, give them some leeway in, a term, in terms of, like, what sort of media they consume. And, I mean, I'll stop my tips on parenting here.
1: Just let your kids watch anything. Just let your kids do whatever they want. <laughs>
0: Uh, That probably wouldn't even be my approach to parenting. But anyway, we were allowed to watch whatever. But this family that I was staying with in the camper, they were the kind of family where like they were close friends of ours for a while. I mean, I was good friends with the kid. But they were the kind of family where like if I was with other friends of mine, like we could pretty much rent anything we wanted no matter how sleazy it was or how stupid it was, like any kind of action movie, anything violent, for example, like obviously not something with overtly sexual, uh, which is sexual overtones. I didn't want to say overtones because I already said overtly and it sounded too similar. But anyway, I didn't want to, you know, you didn't want to get anything that was too sexual. That was kind of a rule. You didn't want to get anything that maybe seemed too excessively violent. But with that, there was some leeway because, you know, we would rent action movies, whatever. But with this family that I was with, you always kind of had to watch something that was adventurous, something that was about, like, boys coming of age, something that was, you know, moderately educational. Basically, what I'm getting at is you always kind of had to watch something that was a little bit boring. Like, just being at their house, like, you go over to their house to, to have dinner and hang out for a, what, what idiots call a play date what perverse freaks call a play date. What we call just hanging out. But anyway, you know, you go over for that, and they'd always have a movie set aside to watch. But it would typically be something just a little bit boring, maybe a little bit educational, very safe, nothing too subversive, nothing violent. You know, it's just... Movies about just, like, people being on adventures... Young Men Learning the Ropes of Life, international movies sometimes, but like big mainstream international movies. It wasn't like they were into obscure film or anything. It was just they would rent popular foreign films and that kind of thing. So Sleepers seemed like a really good fit. That's my point here, is that seeing Sleepers on the wall, it was like it's about boys going through a tough situation. This seems like the perfect movie to watch with this family. And it's interesting that you have to be strategic about those things. It's interesting that even as a kid, like 10, 11 years old, whenever I, however old I was, it's interesting that I was conscious of that, that it was like we can't just rent whatever I want. Like obviously I want to rent something that I'm going to enjoy but I have to be strategic about this. I can't just grab predator or commando off the wall, you know. I can't just grab anything. I mean, those are bad examples. But uh, you know, I can't. I can't grab something that is just senseless
1: violence. Basically, <laughs> that was that wasn't my thought process. Uh, I got to be strategic here. I can't just grab anything that's just
0: senseless violence. No, but you you are conscious of the fact that with this family you're going to have to get something that the mother thinks is going to be informative for the boys and so we rented sleepers and it seemed like the it seemed like the best of both worlds like it looked dark it, but it also looked you know it, it just looked like a good it, i honestly did not think it was going to be all about sodomy i did not think it was going to be all about audiophilia the, it's a movie that's about audiophilia it's about these prison guards who these poor boys, they're from Hell's Kitchen. They make a mistake. They get sent upstate to a boy's home. And these sadistic, audiophile prison guards, they play them the cleanest, crispest stereo unit that you've ever heard. These guards come in late at night, and they, they have a hi-fi system you know, you wouldn't even know that you're listening to a record. There's no crackle. There's no crackle. There's not even a pop. And these guards, you know what they also did? They bring in, at that time, at the time that this is, this takes place, the guards would bring in the best headphones on the market. And they would let the kids listen to these headphones. And the audio is just so clean and crisp and... They put it in these ki- they put it in these kids' head basically that music should only be heard this way, and that's abuse to me. They made they gave kids this expectation that music is only meant to be heard from the finest hi fi stereo unit and through the best headphones, and it just ruins them for life because nothing can ever compare to that. No, you know these audiophile prison guards. No, they're. You know, you just don't expect that it's it's going to be quite as explicit as it is, and so we get back to the camper, and we're my my mom, his mom, and the kid, and I. I don't think his dad was there. I think it was just the moms and the boys on this particular trip. So we're all like we're all cramped near each other, you know. If you watch a movie on on a camper on a little in a little camper, you're all pretty crouched. You're all pretty crammed in. Watching this tiny screen, this little VHS TV, you know, dual hybrid unit. Oh, is this one of those little dual hybrid units? Can watch movies and and see it on the same platform. Uh, but, uh, you know, so we're all crammed in. So it's awkward enough. It's cozy, though. And we start watching this movie and it starts out like, you know, where it's New York street scenes, which I feel like is so many movies back then. Obviously, mob movies. You know, A Bronx Tale, good The the Beginning of Goodfellas. There were other movies where it's just like kids getting into trouble on the streets of New York in the 1960s. That was a staple of movies about New York at that time. It's like kids getting into trouble on the street. And it feels really good to watch that for some reason. As someone who didn't grow up on streets lined with tenement buildings, as someone who's never even been to New York, there's something about watching those like kids growing up on the streets of New York things, even though it's kind of easy, like, I feel like it's easy, like, if you can just capture the vintage look, it'll like immediately be successful. And just because it's easy doesn't mean there's anything wrong with it. I just mean that, I guess for me, it's like anything that tries to capture that era, and does even a remotely decent job, it, ame- it immediately wins me over. I guess my point is, I'm easy. It's not even that doing that is easy. It's that I'm easy prey. Like, i Good. There are good chances that I'll be a fan of something if it's just like kids messing around on the streets of New York in the 50s or 60s and there's doo-wop playing in the background. You know, I'm, I'm easy prey for that. So Sleepers opens that way and then they they take like a, a hot dog push cart and they shove it down the subway stairs and they end up crippling a guy or something and then they get sent to this prison. And so up, into the, up until that point, like you're sold on it and, you're, and, it, and it's a totally appropriate movie to be watching with your moms. And then next thing you know, they get sent to prison. And then Kevin Bacon is demanding a blowjob. And uh, he actually says those words. And then it just it gets into that. And then, you know, the rest of the movie is this kind of far-fetched courtroom drama revenge story. Which it turns out isn't even true. Because that's the other thing. And that, that tells you something about pre-internet is you could see a movie and come across a book that the movie is based on and not even know that it had been completely you wouldn't even know that holes had been poked in this thing revealing it to be a lie like even though it was this controversy when it came out and if you look like if you google sleepers now you'll see that like it was heavily criticized even though it was popular it was heavily criticized because the author it's it's supposed to be autobiographical the author claims it was about him and his friends and he changed names of people and that kind of thing. But there's some very far-fetched stuff, especially in the second half, where like two of his friends who get are, are victims of these prison guards like get out of jail and then they become members of the Westies gang, which is, was a real gang in Hell's Kitchen, and they happen to run into their main abuser in a restaurant. And so they kill him, and then they get put on trial. And another one of their friends who was part of this prison thing was sent up to the prison where he was abused. It turns out he's now a district attorney, and he's trying the murder case with them in it, and somehow nobody knows that he grew up with them and went to a boy's home with them. It just so happens that the, the guy prosecuting them is the most biased person who could possibly... Go against them and they happen to kill the prison guard who raped all of them, including the district attorney who's prosecuting them. And then it involves this priest who's their friend. He's like a priest at their school who's their friend. And he's played by because the thing is, too, about this movie is it's, you know, at the time it was it's like this all star cast of like the biggest upcoming names as well as, you know, the most established names. It's like Robert De Niro uh I was going to say Dennis Hoffman. What the fuck's his name? Is it Dennis Hoffman? I guess that's right. It doesn't sound right. Whatever his name is. The Graduate. Is that Dennis Hoffman? So, <laughs> it doesn't sound right. <laughs> I, you know who I'm talking about. Uh, Dennis. The, the Dennis in it doesn't sound right. But anyway, big actor. A Jewish guy. Did a lot of movies. <laughs> Uh, and uh, and then it has like Brad Pitt And Brad Renfro And it turns out they play the same character Just at different ages So you get two Brads to play this role uh, What's his name uh, I'm losing names Jason Patrick So like Jason Patrick, Brad Pitt Brad Renfro, Renfro Dustin Hoffman Excuse. That's why I thought Dennis See the thing is the second you no longer care It comes to you The second that you no longer care enough to figure out the name, like when I was like racking my brain, like Dennis Hoffman doesn't sound right, but it sounds almost right. There's no way I could have come up with it in that moment. It was once I moved on to the Brad's that Dustin came to me. That happened to me earlier today, too. I was talking to a friend uh, who's a mafia researcher, writer, and I was trying to remember this guy's name and I just couldn't. And then after the call, of course, it came to me when I no longer cared because the information is there. But sometimes it's like you just there's something in the way. And when you move on to something else, it clears the way for that to come out again. Uh, usually when it's no longer relevant to the conversation and then it derails everything, kind of like it's doing now. But it had all these upcoming actors, Dustin Hoffman, Robert De... or established actors, Dustin Hoffman, Robert De Niro, but then all these upcoming guys. So it was really just as big as you could get for that time in terms of, like, male actors. But it turned out the guy who wrote it, it was supposed to be semi-autobiographical, like it was about his childhood. And here he is talking about, like, getting sodomized all the time, and then, like, at the end, the priest, who's played by Robert De Niro, he testifies, like, this is the big, you know, the big moment in the movie, is they convince the priest, who's their friend, they tell him all about, like, what this guard had done to them, and so they convince the Catholic priest, who's kind of a prankster, like, he's, he's a cool priest, like, he helps them do pranks and stuff at the beginning of the movie, and his name's Father Bobby, Father Bobby, oh, Father Bobby, he's the cool priest, He helps us do all the pranks. And then he lies in court. He lies under oath. Because he gives the the shooters an alibi. He gives the two gang members who are on trial for killing the prison guard, he gives them an alibi by saying they went to a basketball game with him. And he's lying to protect them because he knows they killed their, their audiophile abuser. Um but the catholic church of course was extremely upset when it came out when the book came out because it alleges that a catholic priest lied under oath about a murder char- uh, about a murder case and protected two killers and there's no evidence it turns out there's no evidence that a priest ever testified in defense of two killers in a similar crime there's no evidence that any of this stuff from the second movie uh, the second half of the movie happened and some of it conflicts with available evidence. And as a result, the author, Lorenzo carcaterra he said, I changed some of the names, times, and places. So it's like you changed everything. And there's nothing to support that this ever happened. Yet you claim it's autobiographical. So it was heavily contested. And when the movie came out, they pitched it as based on the controversial Novel. So they used that to their advantage by calling it controversial. But it was controversial because people were saying, you know, your story doesn't check out. But anyway, so watching this movie with with these moms and my friend, and it was just like immediately it gets into these kids being violated by these prison guards. And you're just like, oh, man, this is awkward. It's incredibly awkward. For the same reason I'm glad that my sister didn't end up taking me to go see it when we talked about it. Because that would have been really awkward. Because that ends up being the focal point in the movie. Like it doesn't, you know, it moves on to other things. But I mean, it's almost like it's the deliverance effect. Where the movie Deliverance is a great story. It's a great book. It's it's by James Dickey, uh, the book Deliverance. Uh, it's a, a really phenomenal book. And I love the movie as well. But if you tell someone that one of your favorite movies is Deliverance, they're like, oh, you love male rape. Because that's what everybody remembers. That scene is so insane and horrific and absurd in Deliverance that that's what you remember. Because you yourself are pretty much traumatized by it. The first time I ever heard of Deliverance, I think it was like my sister and her friends rented it. And they were watching it in another room. And I wasn't paying any attention. I was just like, I was a little kid. And so I wasn't paying any attention. I was doing something else like playing a video game. And then I just hear these sounds, you know, the, the pig sounds. And I, I peeped my head in the room just to see what was going on. And I just caught like a minute of it. And it was, I mean, that's one of the reasons why you don't let your kid watch anything. Like, even, uh, or rather, that's one of the reasons why you don't let your kid watch like anything and everything, even though I hear I was a minute ago saying like, let your kid watch whatever. There's a reason why you put some constraints. Like, I think if I had rented deliverance, like if when I was like eight years old, nine years old, if a friend and I had rented deliverance, I think my mom would have put a stop to it if she knew what the movie was. Like, if she knew about that scene, I don't think she would have allowed us to rent that at that time. That's what I mean when like, it's like we were allowed to watch pretty much anything, but it seems like explicit sexuality, male rape. I don't think that my mom would have gone for that. But my sister and her friends, they were like old. They were like uh, seniors in high school or something, or maybe like 15, 16. They were older. And so they were watching it in another room. And I just like hear these sounds and I peep my head in and it was horrific. And I think they told me to leave. They're like, you don't need to see this. So Sleepers, it's like while it's not quite the level of absurdity as the rape scene in Deliverance, it's still like that where immediately as soon as that happens, as soon as like Kevin Bacon demands a blowjob from these little kids, you're just like, oh, oh, that's the movie. And then that becomes the central like driving force of the entire movie. Like it comes up again several times. And then that's what the whole murder is about. That's what the whole courtroom drama is about. So it really becomes the entire focal point. And there are like flashback scenes and all this stuff. And so you're watching that with like adults. And it's just, I mean, it's it's only going to be awkward. But there's something about that, like as a kid. And, and I think I mentioned this in a recent episode where I was talking about growing up how my friends and I were obsessed with just sexual euphemisms and we go around the playground like learning them and sharing them and like coming up with code words for sexual innuendos to trick kids into saying like embarrassing things like and I think that's just normal like kids have this preoccupation with sex because they don't completely understand what it is it's very mysterious but then like pedophilia is something that kids are aware of too and I didn't get into that in that episode, at least not a lot. Like I got into the, the whole thing about the statistic probability of certain kids in your life. Some of them, without you ever even knowing, were probably abused in that way. I mentioned that, how like, just statistically, a certain number of girls that you would have known in elementary school, in junior high, and had bad stuff happen to them. And I'm not trying to be a downer bringing that up, even though just talking about sleepers is a freaking downer. Uh, So this is just a downer episode, I guess. Um, But, you know, I was talking about that in the other episode. But what I don't think I got into is that tons of kids, especially boys, were obsessed with pedophilia when I was growing up. Like my friends and I would bring it up and we would kind of joke about it. And I think we were allowed to joke about it because we were kids ourselves and we were all scared of it. And I mentioned in that other episode, I was like, I don't think any anybody in my life, any close friends, were abused or had been even exposed to that much sexuality in general, aside from like porn. Like I never heard about a single close friend of mine walking in on his parents. I never heard about that. Like if it happened to them, they never mentioned it. And I don't think there was any abuse among the immediate group of people who I knew well. And one of the reasons I think that is because we all talked about those things in a very similar way. We all joked about pedophilia in this very similar way. But the thing that we were really scared of, the thing that, like, honestly just freaked us the fuck out was audiophilia. We were extremely worried that somebody was going to introduce us to very high-quality hi-fi stereo equipment. And we were extremely scared that they might introduce us to headphones in which you could hear every little nuance. Like, you could hear, like, the, the drum stick hitting the hi-hat, you know, as if it was in the room with you. (laughs) We were terrified of grown men introducing us to a level of audio experience that would really make all sound worse off for us for the rest of our lives. You know, we didn't want to have our ears ruined, by being introduced to the highest quality stereo equipment available on the market, no. But as kids, we were obsessed with like pedophiles. It was just, and I think because we were we were warned so often about them, we were told continually, if a man pulls up in a car, start walking the opposite direction, and go to the nearest adult. I mean, my mom gave my sister and I a password. She gave us like a little password and she was like, if anybody who you don't recognize ever comes to pick you up from school, let's say it's an emergency, they'll have this password. This sounds like weird secret agent. Like it sounds like my mom was in the CIA or something. No, but it was just like a little practical thing where it was like, you know, like if she's in the hospital or something or an emergency comes up and she has to send a neighbor or somebody I don't recognize, it makes sense for them to have that password you know, just so the kid knows, It was just something she instilled in us. And, you know, you saw it on TV that just don't talk to strangers, especially if they seem to be coming out of the hi-fi shop, especially if they seem to listen to music, because there's a chance if they listen to music, there's a higher chance they're an audiophile. You know, all music fans or all audiophiles are music fans, but not all music fans are audiophiles. So you got to be careful either way. Although I would say that's not even true. I think a lot of audiophiles aren't even fans of music. I don't even think it's about the music. I clearly hold them in in just such despicable contempt. Well, why wouldn't you? Who's the person out there? I mean, first they let gay people marry. Next thing you know, people are going to be advocating for audiophilia. Jesus, you know, this is the world we're living in. You got to warn your kids. But anyway, my friends and I, We were very preoccupied with it. And we had our own little sick jokes. I don't even remember them, really. But we had our own little sick jokes. And I think that's different. I think kids joking about pedophilia is different than adults joking about it. (laughs) I think adults, adult men sitting around, like, making jokes about pedophilia. I think there's something very different about that than kids who are actually the targets of pedophiles. Joking about it. But when we joked about it as kids, we came at it from a place of discomfort, but also kind of absurd humor where, you know, I had friends who would say really sick shit. But we we were just we were always talking about them. We were always talking about child molesters. We were always like thinking and talking about these these people. And I think it's because you were more afraid of that than you were getting killed. As a kid, like you were more afraid you were you were more afraid of these pedophiles and audiophiles out there than you were of getting murdered. It was like this is the fate worse than death if one of these people gets a hold of me. So I think that played a role. Again, there was something mysterious about sex in general, and sex was enough of something that we thought about. But I think I mentioned it before, like we didn't understand the mechanics of sex. So even though we were constantly thinking about sex, constantly joking about it, constantly trying to find out new euphemisms, get a little, like, sneak peek at something sleazy or over the top, you know, something inappropriate, like, we were always looking for that, you know, we didn't understand the mechanics of it. Like, a friend of mine once said to me, he's like, you know, before I ever had sex, like, I thought it was going to be... Like he thought it was going to be this transcendental experience. And someone might pipe in and be like, it is, it it is transcendental. But no, he thought it was going to be like something that you almost like that transcended earthly reality. Like, like, you know, almost like everything just glowed, almost like a psychedelic state or something is what he expected or a a transcendental spiritual experience. And, uh, he, he, you know, when, when he became an adult or, you know, whenever, you know, things happened, he he was just like, oh, I didn't, you know, I didn't know, you know, I didn't expect that he thought it was going to be something else. And I relate to that idea. You know, you don't know what the actual mechanics of it are. So you don't even really think about that. You do a little bit, like you try to find out bits and pieces, but it seemed to be like, when we would talk about it, when we would joke about it, it seemed to be more than just the mechanics of two people, you know, screwing you know it seemed to be more than just like that it was like this I don't know it was like a world unto itself that we ourselves only had this glimpse into and it was very mysterious but when it came to talking about pedophilia that was a different thing entirely but we were still like you know and, and two, like movies there's something about this phenomenon that's you know I don't know I don't know what it is but there's something about it where just talking about movies like if you were to ask somebody like list me 10 movies in which a man is killed in which a person is killed you just start naming like you couldn't even you wouldn't even know where to start you'd be like oh heat a lot of people get killed in the movie heat but still it's there's so many movies where someone gets killed that where do you even begin And for that matter, where do you end that list? If you started trying to list every movie that you could remember where someone gets killed, you'd just be there all day. You'd never stop listing movies. But if you ask someone like, tell me about a movie where someone gets raped, immediately you know the movies. Immediately you know which movies those are because there's something about rape scenes that are particularly gripping. Because again, it's this fate worse than death sort of scenario where it's like, oh, this is something that, you know, that seems, at least to us, more horrific than just ending someone's life. And I think as a result, it always has this just gripping feeling in a movie. And for all I know, it's been overused. Like, at this point, I I don't keep up on movies. So for all I know, rape scenes are just a dime a dozen in modern movies. I wouldn't be surprised if they are. But even just seeing things like Pulp Fiction when you're a kid. Because, again, that's a movie that, like, conceivably your parents wouldn't argue with it's like this might be kind of violent but it's kind of a hip new movie sure I'm gonna let my son watch that and then you watch it and there's you know this obviously deliverance inspired probably maybe not maybe I don't know if Tarantino I don't know about I don't know what influences Tarantino I don't know anything about him but uh, you know it's this, this scene in the movie that like despite everything else going on like everybody remembers everybody remembers the gimp you just remember it. And so like, on one hand, you're going to remember movies that have rape scenes. But then if there's a male rape scene, a male on male rape scene, that's just immediately seared into your head in a way that no other violence that nothing else really reaches. There's something about that that is so horrific. And why is it? Why is it more horrific? Maybe to me as a man, it's more horrific for obvious reasons. I don't need to explain why a male rape scene is horrific. Uh, but what a, what about it makes it worse than a torture scene or a you know a particularly nasty death scene or anything? I don't know. I mean, I, I think it just speaks for itself. Why even break it down? Uh, it sort of speaks for itself. But I think it's for that same reason that as kids, people tended to want to talk about that. And I know it wasn't just my group of friends because occasionally I would be. Put with another group of kids, like I had a neighbor who moved to another part of town, and I went and visited him and his, and his new friends. And he was, you know, we were close to the family, but it wasn't like we had a lot in common. It wasn't like before he moved, all we did is talk about audiophiles and pedi- pediophiles It wasn't like we ever talked about that much. But I was hanging out with him and his friends, and they were a year younger, and they they just immediately started talking about it. They immediately started sharing probably bullshit anecdotes but they were like these little anecdotes about stories they heard about kids getting abducted and molested it just seemed to be something that was on everybody's mind and I think a part of that was because of how often you were warned about it I think part of it was the fact that if it didn't happen to you it was a completely mysterious idea like you heard you heard about child molesters but you didn't know what molestation even was You didn't know what the physicality of it was. So it was just this horrible thing, but you didn't, it was kind of amorphous. It was like an, it was like an amorphous dark shape because you couldn't really comprehend what it was. You just knew that it was potentially the worst thing that could ever happen to you and would damage you for life if the person didn't also kill you. Because people were constantly hearing and talking about that too, about the fact that like someone will kidnap you, molest you and kill you. So there were several different layers to talking about this, but I would run into random kids and they would just launch into it. So it tells me that my friends and I weren't particularly demented because we were thinking about audiophiles a lot. It was something that I think a lot of us had on our minds. And so back to Sleepers, that movie coming out and watching it, it was that sort of deliverance effect where watching that with the family, with your moms, with people, you just... It's just like, man, this this suddenly got really weird. And to make the matters worse on that trip, we only watched about half of sleepers the first night. And then we kind of watched it in bits and pieces over the next couple of days, which is kind of fucked up, if you ask me. Who made that decision? At what point did my mom and his mom or whoever was, you know, running the show decide, you know what, let's let's watch this Long, dark, dramatic movie about boys being sodomized. Let's break it up into pieces and watch it over two or three days. It's just like, what? And there was this point, too, a particularly memorable moment where I think my mom was on the other end of the camper, maybe doing something in the kitchenette because it's not a kitchen. They don't got a kitchen in those things, they're kitchenettes. But my mom was doing something over in the kitchen area. And, uh, I think there was a flashback scene in the movie where he was remembering some of the, you know, some of the, the horrible things that went on in the boys' home. And my mom said, what's going on? Like, she asked, like, for an update from the other end of the room on what was happening in the movie. And my friend's mom replied, he's being raped. Or I think she said they're raping him. And it was just like, whoa. Wow. <laughs> but what's really insane is the friend that I was with After this experience, and it was an experience, uh, after that, he bought the book. The kid that I was with bought the book after that, again, because kids were preoccupied with this. Like, he wasn't even one of the sicker kids. Like, in terms of my group of friends at that point, he wasn't even one of the kids who was coming up with, like, the sickest jokes, the darkest jokes. Like, he wasn't even that kid. But he bought the book, and he, like, kind of acted like he bought it because it was a joke, but it was weird. It was kind of weird that he bought it. Not that I've never done anything like that. But it was weird that this movie, because he and I think we're joking about the movie. I think that's all we could do. I think that's part of It's like this idea of pedophiles and rapists and, and, you know, just child molesters. Like this whole, like, world of monsters that you're introduced to as a kid. I don't think you know what else to do about it except joke about it, assuming it hasn't happened to you. So I think that's like just what you do is you you deal with the omnipresent fear of that by just kidding around about it. So I think we were joking around about the movie a little bit after we watched it, but he bought the book. And then he lent it to another friend, and the book is much more descriptive, if I remember right, because it was based on the book, which claims to be autobiographical, but it's been heavily contested. But the book gets even deeper. But you know what's really strange about this entire thing is if this didn't happen to the author. Like, if if this guy didn't... Because there's no evidence that this actually happened, and there's actually reason to question his story. But it's like, if he actually didn't go to a boy's home where he got raped by prison guards and introduced to hi-fi stereo equipment by audiophiles, like, if that didn't happen to him... Why would you write a book that you claim is a nonfiction autobiography and make that up about yourself? Why would you make that up about yourself? Like, I I could never like I'll joke about anything. Like, there's really nothing that I'm afraid to joke about, to be honest. Like, there are some things that I don't joke about because it would just be pointless shock humor that doesn't even entertain me. But beyond that like I'm really not afraid to joke about anything. I'm not I'm not afraid to be self-deprecating. I'm not afraid to be creative. I'm not afraid to be imaginative. But I could never imagine for any reason humor let alone telling my telling the world about my childhood and make up the fact that I was raped by prison guards as a 13-year-old. Like I can't imagine being like, "You know what? You know, there's a lot of things you can lie about before you get to that point, is what I'm saying here. Like, if he lied about that, what is going on with this guy? But I don't know. I don't know if he lied about that. I don't know that there's—because apparently they don't keep juvenile records— but he even tried to say some, some bullshit because like in the, in the story, his friend who went to the boys' home with him and was abused with him becomes the DA who prosecutes their other two friends who went to the boys' home with them and killed the prison guard years later. By chance, they ran into him and by chance, their other friend of this group of four boys became the assistant district attorney. But uh, it turns out that They don't allow assistant district attorneys to prosecute murder cases until they have 10 years of experience. So there are no rookie ADAs who would be prosecuting a murder trial. So immediately that becomes questionable. There's no way that his friend, who at that point wasn't particularly old, like his friend had not been an ADA for over 10 years. So there's no way his friend could have actually been the prosecutor in a murder trial just by law by the rules of the district attorney's office. So there's little things like that that chip away at his story, along with the fact that it's incredibly far-fetched. Like, the second half of the movie is very far-fetched. But I don't know, maybe the boys' home thing is real, but, like, he tried to... He, he, he said some other BS. Like, he said... Uh, when someone called him out on the... the fact that there's no evidence that this trial even took place, where a priest testified on behalf of two gang members to get them out of a murder. There's no evidence that this ever took place. And the author, Lorenzo Carcaterra, he tried to say, oh, well, that's because they shred the transcript when a case comes back not guilty. He's like, oh, when a case comes back not guilty, they, like, shred the documents and, and don't keep the transcript. They don't do that. Like, just because a case comes back not guilty doesn't mean they don't keep court records of it. It's still relevant. So I don't know what the fuck he's thinking. It's just an obvious lie. It's like that's like the equivalent of like when someone says like are you a virgin and you're like no, I lost my virginity with a girl from out of town who was only here for 5 days and then she's gone forever. It's like that sort of like breakfast club I lost my virginity to like a girl in Canada sort of lie. It's like oh no they they shredded all the court records. It's like they don't shred court records when a case re- is returned not guilty. You can access court records from cases where the defendants got off. There's a reason why everything is kept in court records. So it's just a silly lie to begin with. But it does make me wonder, if, like, what did this guy actually get sexually abused? And he just made up this elaborate uh, court thing. Like, did he just make up this elaborate... Um, story about his friends killing one of the prison guards in a moment of synchronicity, dark synchronicity. And then he made up this trial where his friend, you know, convinced a priest to lie under oath. You know, is there some of it that's true? I don't know. That's the problem. Like when you catch somebody in a lie, the unfortunate thing is you now have to question everything. But if that's the case, like why is this guy making up lies about being sodomized by prison guards unless it's like something perverse, unless he felt some perverse need. But there's actually some, I I was looking into all this because that movie was just seared into my brain. Both the circumstances that I, the only time I ever saw it was with that family in this camper. So I never saw it again. But that was just seared into my brain. I mean, just what I quoted a minute ago was like my friend's mom being like, they're raping him. And just being like, Jesus, I'm sitting here in a camper. I'm in a, I'm in this room with these people. I'm in, I'm in this room with this movie. It's just a weird experience to be a kid and like have to just sit there. Uh, so it was just burned into my brain. And then the fact that my friend bought the book... And then he, he let another friend borrow it, and they they would like let us know what they, what was in it, because there was horrific stuff. Like I said, it goes into more detail about all kinds of things, into the abuse, as any book would, of course. It goes into more detail. And uh, the friend who borrowed it just held on to it. He just kept it indefinitely. And I remember it, too, because it it had the cover of the movie on it. You know, they do that with the book versions. Like, even if the movie is based on the book... They'll do later publications of the book that use the movie cover to try to sell it. Which is... I kind of love how stupid that is. I kind of love the idea. It's like revisionism. It's like, well, because they made a movie out of the book, let's make the book look like the movie by just putting the movie poster on the cover. But he had... The version of Sleepers he had just had the movie cover on the the cover. And the friend who borrowed it just borrowed it indefinitely. He never gave it back. And some significant time later... We were having a 4th of July party at that friend's house and we were still kids and we were always burning stuff like we were blowing up action figures, burning action figures, doing monstrous things to toys. And he just he came out of his bedroom and he had that copy of sleepers that he had borrowed from a friend and we decided to burn it. I don't know if we blew firecrackers up on it. I don't remember what we did, but we decided to burn it. It was almost like some kind of Necronomicon to us. And I don't entirely understand it to this day, but there was something oddly ritualistic about it. And I wouldn't say it was perverse on our part. Like, we didn't—like, I never read the book. I, I plead not guilty. Speaking of court, I plead not guilty. I saw the movie once. I was forced to watch it in bits and pieces in a camper over two, three days with my mom and my friend's mom. I was watching it under duress. I was basically forced to sit there. There was nothing else I could do. You know, when you're at a campground at night, you can't, and you're a kid, you can't go wander around outside. Like, if people are watching something in a little camper, you're pretty much forced to watch it. And not like they forced me. Like, I chose, I was, you know, I chose to rent it not knowing what it was. And it's not like I'm, you know, a prude here. I'm just saying, you know, I feel like I had to kind of watch it under duress and especially you're watching a movie about audiophiles you're not going to go wander around in the woods at night while your family's staying in a camper nearby like the last thing on your mind is going to be like leaving that camper and going walking around in the dark after watching Kevin Bacon do horrible things but it really influenced my entire perception of Kevin Bacon too and his son went to my college toward the end of me being there and I never ran into him, but people ran into Kevin Bacon there. It was the big news on campus was like, oh, so and so saw Kevin Bacon. So and so saw his wife, Kara Sedgwick, who's an actress. Uh, they have a son who it turns out was a crust punk. And I hesitate to even talk about him because all anybody did is like share their own Kevin Bacon's son stories. Like the poor kid just wanted to be like a grindcore crust punk even though he's from like, you know, both of his parents are like extremely successful actors. And he's a crust punk. Of course, that's how it always works. But people were so quick to judge him. I never even met him. My girlfriend at the time did. She worked on campus and she met him. And he was like a big fat kid. So he was like this big fat kid who wanted to be a crust punk. His parents are very famous actors. That kid's under a microscope. But people would say they'd, they'd see Kevin Bacon now and again. But interestingly, my sister ran into Kevin Bacon in the middle of the woods in upstate New York. She was living in a small town in upstate New York with her fiancé at the time. And I was just walking out in the wilderness. And she just came upon Kevin Bacon walking his dog because he had a house in the area. And uh, they said Hello. And she's like, it was completely surreal, especially because at that time at, at time, at that time, at that time, at that time, the whole Kevin, Six Degrees to Kevin Bacon thing was really making its rounds. This is probably like the late 90s, early 2000s that she was living there. And so the fact that like this whole Six Degrees to Kevin Bacon thing was just constant joke, this constant reference in pop culture. And then she literally ran into Kevin Bacon in the middle of the woods and then like 10 years later, his, I think both of his kids, but I know that his son came out here and went to the same college my sister was actually going to at that time and that I would later go to. And that school is the Evergreen State College, which, you know, everything fell apart there. The wheels fell off in 2017. But it's just kind of a strange set of connections there. The fact that, like, she was actually living in New York, but taking classes remotely as part of this program where you could live elsewhere and do your studies there. And so she happened to be at that college, living in New York, runs into Kevin Bacon in the woods. His kids end up going to that same college where both of us went. But anyway, like it just it really burned an image of Kevin Bacon into my brain as this like sadistic, awful person. And every time I see his face I think of that character. And I feel like he played something similar in one of those river movies too. I feel like he played a, a sadistic guy in that as well. But anyway, uh, going back
1: to sleepers, sleep sweepers. Are you talking about sweepers? Sleep. I'm I'm saying sleepers, sleepers, sweet. Yeah, sweepers. Ch- yeah, it's not sweepers. No, not sweepers,
0: sleepers, sweepers. Stupid, really stupid stuff going on here. You want to hear how stupid I am?
1: Sweepers. I was watching Sweepers with uh, my friend and his mom. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we can get real stupid. We can get some, You think things have gotten stupid before on this show. I'm going to show you a whole level of stupid, and I'm going to promise you. That's a promise I'm making you, the listener. That things are going to get real stupid real quick. But anyway, yeah, it turns out this guy lied. But anyway, I was I was digging into the movie last night, and I was actually reading parts of the script, which is a really weird and dark thing to do when you're isolated. Like the next door neighbors moved out a month ago, a little over a month ago, and I think the house got sold, but nobody's moved in. So, and then there's this little green belt, probably like. Fifteen twenty yards worth of green belt on the other side of my house between me and the other house. So I've been in this like dark portal with no humans next to me, and I've been going out and stuff. You know, I go to the stores. You know, I I see some people and things, but I've been in this like dark little portal where like I feel like I go out on my back deck and it's just total blackness. It's just total blackness. Actually, it's not just the next door neighbor the next two houses next to me have been empty for over a month. So there's two completely empty houses on the more human side of my house. And then on the other side, there's just 15, 20 yards of greenbelt trees completely blocking me from other people. So it's just like this isolated little... I'm basically in this little chamber right now, surrounded by blackness at night. And last night I was like just... It was up late... And I was just, for whatever reason, like, I was reading, I read the second half of the script of Sleepers. Like, I'm getting more perverse by the day because I didn't read the book back when the friends were, like, passing it around. But uh, I did end up reading part of the script last night, and it made me feel really alone. (laughs) I felt really alone. I felt like I was in a a very dark little, I felt like I was in solitary confinement. Uh, So I don't want to do that again tonight. But it did lead me down the, just that rabbit hole where, like, I didn't know that the author lied about things. I didn't know that his story was contested. And that tells you something about the pre-internet world because, you know, the New York Times was calling this guy a liar. Like, journalists were calling the author a liar. But as kids, like, we didn't even know that. Like, we didn't even think twice about the movie poster saying, based on the controversial book. Like, we didn't think about why it was controversial. We just watched it, and we took it, for, we took it at face value. We're like, oh, this guy is telling his autobiography about going to a boy's home and getting raped all the time. We're just going to take the story at face value and assume that he's telling the truth. But in the pre-internet world, like, unless you were, like, keeping tabs on every editorial in a random newspaper, you're not necessarily going to know that something was fake, whereas that's the first thing people do today. If something can be contested, you're going to know right away, and every place you look is going to be talking about it. But back then, a hit movie and book could come out and maybe a lot maybe a lot of people knew that it was bullshit, or maybe they had heard the stories. But even then, you're just going to read one or two articles. Now, if you think something is bullshit, you immediately go through all of these minute details that become available online. You comb through it. Or someone else does. Either way, it's going on, where people are just combing through the story, nitpicking. And so the fact that back then, like a movie could come out... And it turns out it's completely bullshit, but they just say it's based on a true story, and most people are just going to take it at face value and be like, yeah, it's a true story about how this guy got violated by an audiophile. Why, why would he lie about that? Why would he make that up? You don't go there with it. It's like I, I've talked about this with urban legends, too. It's anything you heard back in the day, anything you heard from somebody word of mouth... You pretty much had to just take it face value and judge the person and who they heard it from. That's all you had. There's no way. You couldn't go online. You couldn't hear from a bunch of people who got the facts. You just had to take for granted the fact that some of what I hear, some of the stories people tell me as a human being going through life, walking around the playground, are going to be bullshit. And I just have to go with my gut. I have to use my intuition when people tell me stories about their cousin's friend. But now you can go to the cousin's friend's like social media or page and instantly know the scoop because they're doing a video about it. And Snopes is going to fact check it. You know, it's just, that's the world we live in now. But then it's like you could release a major movie and book that's contested by some people and a lot of people aren't even going to get the news. A lot of people aren't even going to care. You're just going to be like, "Oh, it's a movie. I'm going to watch it." That's really all you did. But anyway, I was kind of digging into the story a little bit more last night cuz I was actually surprised to find out that people think it's bullshit. Like I didn't I've gone my entire life thinking that this guy just wrote a truthful autobiography. And so I was kind of trying to find out some of the facts. And of course, the the Catholic school where they went to as kids deny that the priest who was there at the time whatever lie in a murder trial, of course, they would say that. That said, there's no evidence that a priest lied in defense of a murder, that there's no evidence even happened. So there's a, there's definitely a stack of, like, there's an entire house of cards that doesn't check out here, you know, that just falls away once you actually start looking into the evidence, which there is really none. But anyway, with this priest, I looked into the real priest who it's allegedly based on, which was this young charismatic priest who was at the boys' school at the time. And he must be who Robert De Niro is portraying. Because he's depicted as this charismatic, fun-loving priest. And it turns out the priest who was there at the time was this fun-loving, although younger priest, younger than De Niro. But just in the last couple years, as an old man... This priest was accused of sexual misconduct and he's, he's apparently friends with Lady Google. There's pictures of this priest hanging out with Lady Google and he did a fundraiser for her and he's been known because he's a particularly pro-gay priest. And something came out, I guess, years ago where he told a, another priest who was gay not to tell anyone. He, he was like, the system is broken, not you just lie and don't tell them you're gay. And it seems like, I mean, the what, what this is heading to is that in 2019, it came out that he had had sex with a man. He's a priest, keep in mind. And he had had sex with a man. And so the church learned of this and dismissed him from his role. But I thought it was kind of strange that the priest who the priest in Sleepers is based on, it turns out was accused of like, sexual misconduct than being a gay man and i was like that's interesting especially because the rest of the story doesn't check out like this must be the priest who lorenzo carcaterra wrote about who his character was based on and it turns out he's doing some you know i mean obviously there are gay priests i couldn't care less makes no difference to me if there are gay priests But the fact that this guy, he's like encouraging other priests to like hide and he's having sex with men, which is not very priestly of him. You know, I'm not judging him for it, but I'm just saying that's not what a priest is supposed to do. It makes me wonder, you know, it makes me wonder, like, did Lorenzo Carcaterra get sexually abused? Even though the story about the boys home doesn't really seem to be, uh, there's reason to question that, too. It makes me wonder if something did happen. Like, did this priest do something to him? And even though the priest is portrayed as a hero in the movie, you know, we know that victims of, uh, of people will sometimes glorify. I mean, this is getting like Psych 101 about it. But we know victims sometimes glorify their abusers as a way of sort of justifying the behavior. And it does sort of make me wonder if, like, Lorenzo Carcaterra because, like, I'm guessing this guy had something happen to him. Why else would you like share with the entire world in a major book and movie that you were sodomized by prison guards when you weren't like, why would you or like, the prison guard thing doesn't even matter. Why would you just share that you were sexually abused when you weren't you could say attention. But as a man doing that, there's something even a little different about it that makes me wonder if he was sexually abused, but maybe it wasn't at a boy's home. The fact that it's come out that this priest who was at his school at the time he was there, who's probably the basis for the priest in the movie, who he says lied under oath, and it turns out this priest told another priest to lie about not being gay and was engaged in sexual misconduct with men. I don't know, the fact that that all, like, the fact that things are shaping up that way, it just makes me wonder if maybe something did happen to this guy but he came up with a totally fake story. It's like his way of addressing what happened to him but blaming somebody else and glorifying his abuser. I don't know. I'm speaking language I don't like to, to speak here. Psych 101 language. I don't like to say the word abuser. His abuser.
1: His. Oh, he, this is a way of addressing what happened to him while justifying his abuser's behavior.
0: I don't like to talk that way, but here I am. (laughs) Anyway, I had that thought last night. see. This is why I felt like I was in uh, this. This is why I felt like I was in isolation. This is why I felt like I was in an isolation tank while I was in solitary confinement last night, because here I am like reading about sleepers and the fact that this guy may have lied about most of it, but yet he told the entire world he was sexually abused and there's a priest angle and there's a Kevin Bacon angle I mean this is where this is stuff you don't really want to think about when you feel extremely isolated but that movie did have this kind of dark undercurrent after it came out like my friends and I continued to reference it which is weird like we continue it became this point of reference to us and I don't know entirely why that is but I think it was just something particularly dark that caught us at the right time and it's not even like the most horrific movie in the world, you know. There's movies where a lot—it's not like a horror movie. I mean, it is a horror movie in its own way, but nothing that happens in it is is particularly graphic that I can remember. I mean, it might be—it's been a while. I've only seen it that one time. God, like twenty-eight years ago. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe no, twenty-five years ago, probably. I gotta get—I gotta get these dates correct. Sleepers came out 25 years ago. It didn't come out 28 years ago. See, I'd be the liar. People would be telling me I'm a liar. I think something that makes me, another dark association that I have with Sleepers is the guy's name. The author's name was Lorenzo Carcaterra, And his last name was always dark to me. Carcaterra. It's an Italian name, but it sounds like carcass. Carcaterra. And I think the fact that his name sounds like Carcass, and he wrote this book and made this movie about child rape, Carcass, audiophilia, not to be confused with the band Carcass, not to be confused with an audiophile listening to Carcass on his hi-fi setup, can really hear those gurgly growls. I don't know, it just, it had an impact, clearly. And, you know, interestingly, too, the the friend of mine who I saw sleepers with in his family camper and who bought the book, I found out just a few months ago that he's now a woman. And that blew my mind. You know, completely blew my mind. I've met all kinds of trans people in Olympia. I live in a part of the world, I live in a city in particular, where, you know, it's not like every other person is trans, but you meet a significantly higher number, just if you go out into the world here, you meet a significantly higher number of trans people, but they're either just acquaintances, people I only know peripherally, especially when I was drinking, and just would socialize and go to parties, you end up meeting people. So I'm no stranger to it. I guess that's my point. Is i I'm no stranger to that. But I this is the first childhood friend uh, I'm aware of who uh, has become a woman. And that's just interesting. It's funny to me that it's the same friend who I saw Sleepers with and who bought a copy of Sleepers, but I I recently found out all this and I really have nothing to say about it. I'm just like I was like wow. That's news to me but that book, you know, you know I I didn't feel the need to read it. But I I have to believe that he read it cuz he just wanted more info. Cuz that's kind of what we were all looking for. Like not even getting away from audiophilia cuz I don't want to dwell on that topic too much. I mean, some things are just so dark and dismal. And I think most people agree that audiophilia is one of those things that you just don't want to talk about it too much. It's like, use sparingly. You can't avoid the reality of audiophilia. You can't ignore the reality that some people are just audiophiles. And what do you do with them? Do you kill them just for being audiophiles? Do you put them in a camp? You just have to try to recognize them and hope they don't offend. You have to hope that the cycle of abuse doesn't get passed on to Other kids who these people might come in contact with. You just have to hope. But what do you do about an audiophile? Well, I know that you know you can't ignore the reality of audiophilia, but what you can do is talk about it very rarely, talk about it sparingly. I know I talk about audiophiles a lot on this show. The reason why I'm comfortable talking about audiophilia on this show, maybe a little more often than I would with other people. You know, it's not something you want to make small talk about, audiophilia. You just don't You don't want to go up to a random person and just start talking about audiophiles because you don't know what happened to that person, first of all. You don't know if, if you start talking to some random person, you don't know if maybe early on in their life they had, let's say, an uncle, you know, maybe an older boy in the neighborhood who was an audiophile and put them in a room without their parents there maybe gave them some sort of promise, maybe groomed them in some way, and made them listen to
1: crystal clear hi-fi stereo equipment.
0: You don't know if that happened to somebody. And so you don't just launch into, you know, you've heard of trigger warnings, well, they exist for this reason. While I don't believe in them, And anybody who even uses that phrase annoys me, whether they're for them or against them or otherwise, you know, that said, small talk is sort of that. Like, that's why people are off the the mark when they're like, we need trigger warnings. And other people are like, trigger warnings, blah, blah, blah. You know, the reason why, like, I don't even want to touch that, why I don't believe in trigger warnings, but I also don't believe in like fighting trigger warnings is because that's what small talk is. Small talk is a way of testing the waters of where someone's mind is at, what they like to talk about, where they're willing to go. And so you you make small talk with somebody and find out if audiophilia is something that they might be interested in talking about. But usually you have to be pretty comfortable with somebody to know whether or not they're comfortable talking about that. But that's why small talk exists. But we try to talk about it sparingly on this show, but that said, it does get talked about probably more often than I would like. But that's because this show has on-again, off-again, audio file repellent, which is that sort of glitchy feedback that's sometimes in the background of those episodes. That is audio file repellent that is designed to keep the audio files away because they can't stand anything that isn't supposed to be there. They can't stand when there's feedback or when you breathe on the mic they they can't stand anything that is uh, they can't stand anything that isn't crystal clear hi-fi audio which is why I'm comfortable talking about this because this show has a lot of built-in audiophile repellent anyway this this was all going somewhere at one point and that's that you know this isn't a topic that I necessarily like to talk about but I think you can you can go outward to just the topic of sexuality in general and sex in general. And I think that's why my friends and I were so curious. And I think that's why this kid bought the book. I think that's why he lent the book to a friend of mine. It wasn't that like as 10 year olds, we were pedophiles and we were like, get a load of this. It was that the entire idea was just shrouded in mystery. It was foreign to us in every possible way, but yet it was something that we were were reminded of all the time. And so I think they were just trying to figure it out. I think they passed this book around just trying to figure it out. But it is interesting that my friend and I burned it. Why did we burn that and not other things? To us, it represented some kind of evil. Maybe we sensed that it was filled with lies. Maybe we sensed that Lorenzo Carcatera lied, and we burned it for that reason. Maybe we burned it because, in in some strange way, it was a we were telling all the audiophiles, "Fuck you." We're burning this book about audiophiles to tell them, "Fuck you."
1: <laughs> Me and my friend, we burned a copy of Sleepers on the 4th of July to tell the audiophiles, fuck you. And the stuff you do to kids is wrong.
0: No, something... You think about that. That's serious stuff. And that's like kids-only business. Like, you don't tell your parents about that. You don't tell your parents that... We saw this movie about dark shit. One of my friends bought the book and lent it to another friend... And he and I burned it symbolically. How do you explain that ritual to your parents? It's like... That's like kid magic. And I think that's exactly what it is. It's kid magic. And it's made even more pure by the fact that we really didn't even know anything about this stuff. It's why the, the classic Playboy magazine in the woods... It's why that was a magical experience. Because it was so esoteric. Even though it involved human sexuality even though like in that case it wasn't just playboys but there was a stash a couple different times there were stashes in the woods and uh, some of them were explicit some of them were you know full-on hardcore porn magazines and you would just get a glimpse like when I was in elementary school there were there was a couple magazines stashed in the woods there and someone someone put them there someone dragged them out and we got just a glimpse before the recess teacher, recess attendants, found it. But we got this glimpse, and even though it involved bodies, even though it involved like the stuff that is most natural to us as humans, which are bodies, doing the thing that creates life, it's also the most mysterious thing to us as children, even though it's the very thing that created us. It's the simulation of that at the very least. They're simulating the thing that created us. It's also the most foreign thing to us at that age. It's extremely esoteric. And this sounds extremely pretentious to be like, oh, the reason why as little kids we were preoccupied with sex and pedophilia is because it was esoteric. But that's really the truth. You know, it was just it was stuff that was off limits to us. Like, I mean, I even said earlier, my mom pretty much let me watch whatever I wanted as a kid, except stuff that was too sexual. And that applied to a lot of my friends. There seemed to be a rule about that. And somebody could say, oh, it's it's sex negative parenting. You know, that's not it at all. It has nothing to do with being sex positive or sex negative. There just seems to be a reason why you don't want your children to be exposed to sexually explicit material. There's something about the fact that we as little boys could handle violence, shooting, stabbing, fighting. There's a reason why we could process that a lot easier than we could movies with with hardcore explicit violent sexuality. And somehow our parents, I think, just knew that. I think they knew that we could process action movie violence. But we, but we couldn't really process movies with an explicit rape scene. Or even just hardcore, you know, not, not porn, but even just something that's a little too hot and heavy in an R-rated movie. I think there's a reason why they kind of just intuitively gravitated that way. I don't know what studies show. I don't know what's better or worse. I just I think that there's so, there was something to that that made those things that much more esoteric and hidden from us, but I think they had to be. I think those things kind of had to be. I think that's something that yeah, maybe there's a he- more healthy way of dealing with it. I don't know. But somehow I think there was something right in that approach. You know, and you think about too the violence where my friends and I would act out violence like we would uh, go around with toy guns and swords and act out these violent dramas pretending to be movie characters pretending to be fantasy characters whatever it was and so that's kind of how we dealt with watching violent movies but then how we dealt with movies or any subject matter where like you know something something a little more explicitly sexual was shown to us like anytime we got a glimpse of that I think we had to kind of approach it as these little occultists. I think we kind of had to be these, these strange little, even scientists about it. I think we were kind of like trying to find all these different angles to understand this thing. And when my friend bought a, a book copy of Sleepers, I kind of understood, but I also was like, you're playing your hand, you're showing your hand a little, you know, what do your parents think of that? Like, your mom saw that movie with us. What does she think about the fact that now you want to read the book? Not that she thinks you're going to be a pedophile because you want to read the book, but just, oh my God, my kid's reading a book about pedophiles. He's going to grow up to be a pedophile. You know, like, I don't know that she would worry about that. But it is kind of a weird little thing. And I mean, something similar, too, is another friend of mine had this comic book as a kid. It was called Hardware hardware and if I remember right it was about a black superhero I want to say it was a DC it was a pretty big publication the publisher was a big comic publisher and it was called hardware and there was this comic my friend had where hardware and it feels silly to call somebody that where hardware met this other superhero who nobody... It was like a made-up superhero just for this comic. And it was a guy who was fighting street crime and fighting thugs. And this made-up superhero, like, it tells his backstory. And it turns out, like... And it depicts all this in the comic. Like, not in graphic visual detail, but certainly in, again, this esoteric sort of way. And there's this scene where it's, like, showing this guy's backstory. And, like, a home invader breaks into his apartment and ties him to a chair... And rapes his wife, then his little kid, and then the guy himself. Like, he kicks over the chair and, like, rapes the guy on the chair, I guess. I don't even know. Like, it's all, like I said, it's all very suggestive. You don't actually see what's going on. But the dialogue bubbles fill you in. Like, the uh, the attacker, like, at one point, like, he's you know he's raping the kid. And the kid is saying, like, the dialogue bubble for the kid is, help me, daddy, it hurts. And the guy's tied to a chair and can't do anything. And this isn't a, a, like a DC comic. This isn't a big comic called Hardware. And my friend, he's a little kid and he just has this. And he showed it to me. Because, like, again, it's like this weird... It's something you don't entirely understand as a kid. You know it's this fate worse than death sort of situation. And you might not know it yet but it's like you all, you know that there's something about introducing that into a story that immediately colors the entire story like I wouldn't be able to tell you anything else about hardware I don't know anything else about the, the superhero his backstory I just know that it's a comic where it has this like very horrific scene where a bad guy rapes this guy and his entire family and he turns into like a superhero because of it that's all I know about it for the same reason that when someone hears deliverance all they remember is that scene for the same reason that a lot of people hear pulp fiction and they're like bring out the game
1: bring out the game you know there's a lot of
0: there's a reason why that's is seared into everyone's minds and I, I still remember my friend showing me that comic the hardware comic because we he actually he had this this closet that like probably in retrospect it was small but like two kids could comfortably stand in it. It was, like, not quite a walk-in closet, but it was a closet that, like, had a light. And he had a bunch of comic books and just toys and things. And so you could go in there and, like, you could actually hang out in there comfortably. And, and we went in there because he wanted to show it to me, like, and not have his mom burst into the room. What you reading, son? You know, he didn't want something like that to happen. So he showed me this comic in the closet, which is funny. But it did feel like contraband. And like it, there is sort of this contraband element to it where like the friend letting the other friend borrow sleepers. And it's like they already knew the story. They'd already seen the movie. So they know how the story plays out. But I think they wanted to immerse themselves in those gritty details. Even though this book is turns out as total bullshit. I think they just they wanted to learn as much as they could about that side of life. This thing that you hear about. And uh, I think it was the same thing with the comic book. There's this feeling of contraband. Like kids are passing these things between each other. Like obviously porn is something else. But at that point, I don't know that it is. Like at that, when you're like eight years old and you find Playboys and even harder core porn in the woods, it's not like you're sitting there thinking like, oh, I got to jack off to this. Oh man, I found porn in the woods. I'm going to jack off, dude. You know, it's not, <laughs> it's not like that's what you're going to do. It's, it's not like that even enters your mind when you're eight years old, at least for most people. It's more of an esoteric sort of, I don't even know what to call it, you know, without sounding extremely pretentious, you know, but it, there is something to it. That's almost like, it's like finding it's forbidden. And that's the obvious part of it. But there's something beyond the forbidden angle. Like, there's something in terms of, like, gaining that knowledge. And it's foreign. At that time, it's very foreign. And just, like, getting those glimpses of sexuality, period. Like, both evil sexuality, like audiophilia. Oh, is audiophilia a sexual thing? I didn't realize it was, but... um the ears man think about the ears
1: think about what's happening to someone's ears of course it's sexual
0: um what was i gonna say anyway where do you go with that um but no with uh with just the, the idea of sexuality in general i mean you just think about things like my neighbor uh his family owned the movie earth girls are easy and god i'll be here for another hour at this rate but uh, he had the, they had the movie Earth Girls Are Easy, which is, you know, about aliens come to Earth. It's a very hokey, goofy movie, but we would watch it all the time. And that movie, it's like it, there's a hint of sexuality to the entire movie. These aliens come to Earth and they get a makeover and they're like these handsome men who are hanging out with Gina Davis. And I feel like there's like trashy, hot rich women in that movie or something it just has that it's i haven't seen it since i was a kid but it has that feeling throughout the entire movie where it's just like a fun probably pg-13 movie but there's a hint of sexuality throughout the entire movie and again i'm, I'm speaking language i hate i hate the way that sounds coming out of my mouth there's a hint of sexuality throughout the entire movie oh earth girls are easy there's a hit i mean the, the, the name of the freaking movie the name of the movie is Earth Girls Are Easy. Like, what the fuck am I even talking about? Why do I even need to say, I think there's a hint of sexuality in the movie. You know, the movie is called Earth Girls Are Easy. So why am I even trying to explain it? But we would watch that movie and there's a scene where Gina Davis is getting a makeover and she's on like a slab. She's on like a, an operating table. She's probably just at like a beauty salon or something, but she's laying on this table and she has like a ga- I think it's a gown over her torso. But the gown has holes in it, holes. <laughs> the gown the gown has holes where her boobs are. And I think Gina Davis has fairly small boobs. I've never really thought about her that way. Uh, a very attractive woman. Gina Davis is a very attractive woman, but I've never really thought about whether her boobs are big or not. I've never really thought about her chest. She's a very beautiful woman. But anyway, she's wearing this gown, and there are two holes for each boob. For each boob. And there's something covering them, though. And then I think they might be doing a waxing. I never knew what they were doing. Again, all this stuff is esoteric. When you're a kid watching a movie like that, half the movie is just esoteric. Half of it's just completely occult. You have no idea. It's all, The meaning of all of it is hidden from you. And you're in this pure state where you're just taking it as, like, I mean, you might as well be on drugs. Like, you might as well be on psychedelic drugs and just hallucinating because none of it makes any sense. You're barely following the story. You're five years old watching Earth Girls Are Easy. You're barely following the story. You understand these are aliens. Somehow that is more intuitive to you than anything else in the movie. That you know that these are aliens, and you don't really even have any questions about that. Like, I had no questions of, like, where did those guys come from? Why why do they all have, like, different color skin? One of them's red, one of them's, like, blue, the other one's orange. You know, why do they have different color, like... Where the frick do these aliens come from? You're, like, it's funny that I didn't question that at all, but I'm like, what are they doing to Gina Davis's tits? I guess they were waxing them. Like, maybe they were getting rid of, like, you know, female nipple hair, aka just plain old nipple hair, because it turns out everybody's got a little bit. Everybody's got a little nipple hair. Um, but, uh, horrible voice horrible statement to just make everybody's got a little nipple hair um but they they rip it off of her and then for like a split second and she like her eyes get big and are like like she's shocked i don't think she screams maybe she does but like she's like she's completely shocked that's why i think it must be wax because they like rip it off her boobs but it's just weird she's in this gown that has perfect circles for her tits But you can't see the entire boob. You just basically see the nipple on each side when they rip it off. But like my friend and I would like rewind that and watch it over and over again. And again, like we're we're like five years old. We're not sitting there like just got to see Gina Davis's tits over and over again so we can check off, dude. You know, it's like we're not coming from that point of view at all. But yet there is something that compels us like nobody told us to do that. We probably learned how to rewind movies just to see that. Like, we, we probably learned how to operate the VCR just so we could watch that over and over again. And we didn't even know what we were witnessing. Like, we didn't know what they were ripping off. Like, we didn't know what was covering her nipples. We didn't know what the this gown was, this weird gown where just the boobs are exposed. We didn't know who these people are who are, like, surrounding her. We don't We don't know what a makeover is. So the whole thing was strange to us, but yet we were like, "Oh my god, we can see her nipples," and we were excited by it. We were excited by that, and uh, but but our own our own thing didn't even factor in, like our own libido. Like it wasn't libidinous as five year old boys. Like it wasn't really libidinous. It was just exciting. And that I could give you other examples of that experience that I won't go into, but I think that kind of underlies this, the point of this entire episode, which was what like a synopsis of sleepers, <laughs> you know, like I've gotten into just giving you a, a synopsis of movies, giving you some of the, the background. No, it, I think this plays into something I've been hitting on recently, which is is a subject that like audiophile jokes aside, this show really hasn't delved into. This isn't a sex show. This isn't this isn't a show that's really for or about that. For us by us. No, this this isn't really a show that's really needs to deal with that. But I have been thinking lately about just the way that we approach that as kids, the way that we're drawn to it, the way that we get glimpses of it, which I think is the right thing. I think kids should get glimpses of it. But I agree with that parenting approach of, like, kind of giving kids leeway in terms of what they watch. Like, innuendo is fine. Like, nobody gave a shit. Like, no parents of me or my friends gave a shit about innuendo. It was just the kind of—it was the—when things get a little too heavy. They, they kept us away from that sort of element uh, when it came to, you know, sex— and sexuality and that sort of thing. Just if, if things were too heavy, whether it was a, a movie that depicts something consensual or whether it's one of these rape movies that seem like they just become just a category unto itself. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if you can search by that somewhere.
1: Oh, Netflix recommends. Oh, Netflix sees that you watch Sleepers. And it's going to recommend you other rape movies like, uh, let's see here, we got Deliverance, we got Pulp Fiction, G.I. Jane, which I've never seen, but I, ever, the only thing I know about it is that it fits into this category. You know,
0: it, it does become this thing unto itself, but I think parents are right for sort of, you know, monitoring that, monitoring, monitoring your exposure to that. For whatever reason, I think kids, I think that, I think it kind of should be a little bit esoteric to kids, to be honest. I think that there was something genuinely fun about that, because you always felt like you were brushing up against something dangerous. Like, I wouldn't think twice, like, and even stuff like, of course, I saw movies that had sex scenes, and my mom didn't give a shit about that. If it was just like a normal sex scene, nothing too... uh, nothing too notorious there. It wasn't a big deal, but it was one of those things where like if my mom walked by in the background, when I was watching a movie and like a guy's getting his head blown off. I wouldn't think twice. Just be like, whatever. They're just blowing guys heads off. That's what we're watching here. But if there's something, even like a man and a woman kissing, I'd immediately be like, eh, I'm not, I don't really want to watch this in front of my mom. And someone would be critical of that. Someone would say, that's because they've conditioned you.
1: That's because they've conditioned you to see human sexuality as a sinful, forbidden fruit.
0: No, I don't think that's it. I think there's something legitimately mysterious about it. And as a kid, you're introduced to this idea that it's the ultimate pleasure and that everybody desires it recreationally. You're introduced to the idea that it's the very thing that creates you. And then you're, interest, then you're introduced to the idea that it's this thing that evil people do that can and will ruin your life forever if they do it to you. And you should always watch out for them. That's a pretty heavy set of ideas to associate with something that we all are going to deal with one way or another. And at that age, barring some sort of abuse, chances are you haven't dealt with it. Chances are you haven't really been introduced to what it even is physically, let alone what it means philosophically, what it means existentially. So again, to go over those three points, just because I am running a school here, I am running a school here, and I want you to remember what's important, It's this thing that created you. And when I was like four or five years old, I was told that. I was told that a man and a woman do that. And it creates you. So that's a whole world unto itself to deal with. This thing that I piss out of, excuse me, but we're we're talking biology here. This thing that I piss out of Is going to be placed inside of a thing that a woman pisses out of. And I'm going to produce a seed that creates another me who's also part her. That's a pretty, that's a world unto itself to think about. But then you find out that it's this thing that everybody's obsessed with. And they don't wanna do it and create a new life. They just wanna do it for fun. And they'll ruin their entire life for it. They'll go they'll pay somebody for
1: it. They'll you know, they'll do anything for it, man. Dude, if you if you get that haircut, you're never gonna get laid.
0: Every movie you see, one way or another, chances are there's some element of innuendo. There's characters who are very desirous of it. Every kind of like pop culture media you interact with, everybody's obsessed and preoccupied with the idea of getting pleasure that way. So that's a whole world unto itself to deal with. And now you're told that the thing worse than death is either an adult touching you there Or doing far worse to you. For their own sick pleasure. And that it's. Potentially the worst thing that could ever happen to you and your family. And that the people who do that to kids sometimes kill the kid. Someone might do that to you and then kill you. And then adults do it to other adults. Adults force themselves on other adults, and sometimes they kill them. That's a world unto itself to think about. So these are a lot... That's a lot for, you know, just looking at one dimension at a time is a lot. And as a kid, you become aware of all of those things by a certain age. And even if your parents shelter you, you can't avoid newspapers, you can't avoid the news, you can't avoid the rumor mill of kids on the playground telling each other about things. Because that's actually how you learn about a lot of it. Kids sharing that information with each other, which is amazing. It's amazing that kids compare notes. Oh, hey, I saw this. I flipped to this channel and I saw this. This kid I grew up with who was kind of a a dork. He was always nice, but he, he was very tall, had a very long neck. He looked like a human brontosaurus. And to make matters worse, he would wear a lot of turtlenecks. And not just turtlenecks, not mock turtlenecks, but he'd wear those turtlenecks that had like a huge fucking neck on it that you had to fold over. And even and it, like, it was big. It was like this big folded over thing around your neck. And so the fact that he had such a long neck, it just made his neck seem that much longer. So just this neck of a boy, he was just this walking neck... And then he had an interesting fashion choice because he would wear those. He would wear like a white turtleneck folded over like that. But then he would wear like a a professional baseball jersey. He was a fan of the Mariners, the Seattle Mariners. So he he had a lot of these jerseys. And so he would wear baseball jerseys. And that's not a jersey that a lot of people wear casually. Like, when I grew up, you would see a lot of football jerseys, a lot of basketball jerseys. Wearing a professional baseball jersey, like, even though everybody liked baseball and all that, it was kind of a dork move. Wearing a a professional baseball jersey to school, especially with a turtleneck, like, it was just kind of a dork move. And then he would tuck it all in. So he had this, like, baseball jersey and turtleneck, like, tucked into jeans, like, ill-fitting jeans, I just want you to get a visual for this kid. It's not important to the story. But he was kind of innocent and naive, but he would drop like interesting little things now and again. And we would give him a hard time because, because he was kind of naive because he was kind of dorky, but he was a friend of mine. And he actually came to my kindergarten birthday and his mom called in advance and said like, Hey, Ryan is coming uh, to Eric's birthday, but can you hide any snakes or snake toys that Eric might have. She's like Ryan is terrified of snakes, so if Eric has any snake toys, if you could just hide them. And I did have a snake toy, and so we hit we hid it in a closet. And I I wanted nothing more than to get that thing out and show him that snake to see him just freak, but I didn't do it. But anyway, so this kid we were on the bus in high school, so this was like way later. And he was talking about how, I guess his family had like a TV that allowed you to watch porn. Or no, no, I know what it was. It was that uh, there was a public access show of this guy who he would host this show where he just played porn. And there were no obscenity laws. Like this guy, he did this for years, and he used the name Mike Hunt, obviously a play on words. And he would just play porn, like hardcore porn. And I never actually saw it myself, but I I talked to enough people to know that this existed. And so this guy, Ryan, was like talking on the bus. He was like, I was watching TV at 2 a.m. And uh, that show with Mike Hunt came on. And uh, he's like, it showed this girl with two dicks really going to town. And that was the funniest thing I'd ever heard. Like this dork, like who just this awkward, dorky kid in a turtleneck and a baseball jersey tucked in, just going, I saw this girl, like, with two guys, and she had, like, both their dicks in her hand, and she was really going to town. And we like la- we immediately latched on to that. Like, I think this kid heard us say going to town every day on the bus for three straight months until he just hated us. But it was so funny to me because it's like, again, it's like this exchange of, like, you know, he's not telling us about like, oh, I was watching TV the other night and you wouldn't believe it. Uh, Leave it to Beaver was on TV and it was the episode where Eddie Haskell tells the mom that, uh, you know, they're they're not doing anything wrong and she has a nice dress on. You know, it's it's not like he's telling us about that. It's like there's a reason why he's like transmitting information to us. Like I saw pornography over the weekend at 2 a.m. and you wouldn't believe what I saw. You wouldn't believe it. So even, like, kids, that's what I mean about, like, it's not even just my friends were perverse. It was just this constant exchange of info. And then the Internet came around. And sure enough, that, you know, I'm not going to call it perverse. I'm going to say just that natural inclination to investigate led a a, a bunch of people, almost said a punch of people, a punch of people, a punch of people, Uh, it led a bunch of people to investigate even further. And I was a little, a little hesitant and I'm not going to, we're an hour and 40 minutes in, so I'm going to close this out. But anyway, maybe I'll continue on. Maybe this is a trilogy. Maybe this whole topic of sex and all this, which, you know, like, again, this isn't my preferred, uh, topic of conversation, but I feel like there's been enough small talk. I feel like this is better than commenting on the state of the world, Oh, I've been been going maskless to the grocery store lately, which I have. We've entered this sort of boring, dreadful no-man's land of politics and pop culture. And I could tell you how bored I am by it. I don't have a lot that I want to say about things in the world right now. I don't really have a lot. Not that I'm, like, mad or critical or upset about anything, I just don't have a lot to say about it right now. And I know that I will in the future, so might as well just reminisce about audiophilia in movies you saw as a kid and all this stuff. But again, just it's obvious why sex is a big deal to you as a kid, and it's not just because it's forbidden. It's not because we live in some repressive, post-Victorian culture it's because it gives you access to the these whole new worlds of existence that preoccupy everybody that people ruin their lives over that people ruin other people's lives over so why would i not be interested in that why would that not be some esoteric well that kids want to look into and, and like, you know, pull up the bucket and see what comes up. Oh, it's a Playboy. People, Somebody's stashing their collection of porn magazines in this abandoned well. How are you not going to be interested in that?
1: I see a land where children can run free so terrible